you like your job? Do you believe in the company's vision? What type of leader do you want to be? If you answered yes, sometimes, the type that doesn't suck, then join Jake Fletcher and Brock Yorty on Leaders Drink Last podcast. We're going to discuss experiences on construction projects around the world, new and old leadership styles, failures, quitting jobs, coaches, mentors, building teams, believing in empathy, and life. And of course, beer or that stiff drink, because the better you get at your job, the more responsibility you take on, the later and later that drink comes. And when we take that drink, we celebrate the people and the accomplishments and the projects and knowing that in our heart, we did the right thing. Welcome to the Leaders Drink Glass podcast. If you enjoy it, please like and subscribe. Hello, welcome to Leaders Drink Last podcast. Uh, I'm Brock Yorty, and as always, I have my great friend and host, Jake Fletcher, with me. And uh, we got a lot to talk about leadership this week. How are you doing, Jake? I'm pretty good. You know, busy. It's uh, getting on baseball season. So volunteering and uh, finishing up another semester of school and uh, just living life, but happy to be here on a Sunday and doing something that I love and uh, talking leadership with you, buddy. And you're, you've, uh, you've stepped up your coaching game, your leadership game from uh, what were you doing? Pee Wee? What was it? Uh, little league. So little league. Uh, there, there weren't enough kids to uh, for me to get on my own team in the league this year. So uh, it's a good experience for my son. He's playing under a different coach and uh I don't know. I just reached out to some local high schools and turns out somebody needed some help. So I uh, moved up to the high school level and uh, it's been a quick adjustment, but I, I'm starting to feel comfortable on my feet and, uh, you know, just uh, working with some kids that are a little bit bigger. Yeah. So freshman JV varsity, what are you coaching? Varsity. So I got thrown right into the into the big leagues, so to speak, in, in this city. And obviously you, you lead a lot of people within your age, you know, plus or minus five to 10 years, but now, now you're uh, helping coach and lead, you know, individuals that are 10 years younger than you, but that's not the traditional coach. You know, we see that PJ Fleck did it in the, you know, the Mac and the big 10 was a younger coach and had a different camaraderie. And, you know, we talked, a lot about the Rams coach being younger and being connected, but how is that? Like, are there a lot of young coaches in the Vegas area or is it very different for those, those kids to be like, wait, you're only 11 years older than me, or you're only 10 years older than me. Uh, I'd say it is different. I think there's a kind of a shift going on as coaches are getting older and, you know, leaving the game or retiring. Um, I haven't caught a lot of uh, kids really noticing uh, the age in particular. They, 
mainly what they pay attention to is, you know, kind of how you treat them and how you interact with them, which is, you know, it's exactly what we always talk about uh, when people talk down about uh, the younger generations today. Uh, you know, to me, it, it's all a matter of understanding how to communicate with them and uh, adapting myself to them rather than, uh, you know, when we were kids, coaches were just, you know, very different, uh, a lot more hardcore. And we just kind of, we just kind of took it. Right. Um, I, what I appreciate about kids uh, these days is that they aren't afraid to try and communicate uh, how they're feeling or, you know, if they feel like something's not right. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's difficult for some people to interact with, but uh, it's, it's the changing world we live in. It is. And, um, whoa, you know, we went from a discussion a few weeks ago about who's going to win the Super Bowl, which was a great game. And a, uh, you know, went back and forth. A lot happened. It was, uh, it was very, um, I don't know. It was, it was refreshing to have, have a game so close and two coaches and it go either way and how it went down. Um, and I was, I was happy with how the Super Bowl turned out and uh, Matt Stafford, you know, being a, a, a lion, it was, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of shirts out there that said Detroit Rams and whatnot on it. And it, it felt good to get to root for somebody that was close. Um, and then pow four days ago, five days ago, we, we see something that was on the teetering edge back and forth. Um, Russia decides to invade Ukraine and we're seeing all different comments across the board from leadership. And, uh, you know, we talk about the the young men that you're coaching right now, and we've often made parallels to Generation Z being like the builder generation, the greatest generation. And they have this opportunity right now in the construction industry to be part of the infrastructure and the, the build back bills and all of this happening. And we've talked a lot about how construction has had an age gap. And I've spent the last decade really trying to figure out why at 41 in construction industry, I'm a kid. And um, in 99, when I was to join the military, my father pulled me aside and said, listen, your mother cried every day. Your brother was deployed in Iraq my older brother's 10 years older than me. And he goes, I'm, I can't stop your younger brother from joining, but I'd really like you to not join. And so in 1999, I didn't join the Marines like I would have. Not saying at 41, I'd still be in the Marines. But 2001 happens, 9-11. And a lot of the men and women that would be in construction or were in construction in the military, like you and your colleagues, um, they went to fight a war on terror and we lost, you know, a general, not a, a decade and a half of men and women 
that would have been capable leaders in the construction industry are capable leaders, the ones that came back and chose to be in it. But we think about where did our trades go and where did our people that liked being outside and working with their hands go? And they went to war. And here we are on the edge of this massive infrastructure bill and this very, very parallels, you know, coming out of the depression, everything that's happening, you know, in the United States to build highways and parks and all of this stuff. And there's a war in Europe, you know, and the the young men that you're, you're coaching are going to have that moment. And you've said this before to me, we might have a draft again, you know, because we, we don't, we don't have the military. We don't have the men and women that volunteered at different levels, but we didn't, we didn't have this, you know? And so here we are as leaders in the construction industry, looking for a workforce, a potential workforce that is damn excited to be outside, be outside, be part of green energy, be part of the infrastructure, be part of water, be part of resources. But the reason they want to be part of it, because they want to be part of something bigger and a greater purpose. And freedom and democracy is a pretty big purpose. And depending on how the weeks come, the months, the years, we've already seen that from Ukraine speaking at uh, Finland and, you know, Scandinavia about, well, if you join NATO, you know, Sweden will, will retaliate back as well. Here we are. And you just went reserves six months ago, eight months ago. How long has it been? Uh, it's been, it's been a little over a year. Okay. Uh, spe- speaking of which my, uh, my paperwork's been approved. So Come August, I will be fully civilian. Um, so people keep asking me my opinion on what's going on. And uh, I think, you know, when I first when I first got into the military, something like this would have probably put me more on edge. Uh, but I think over time, you know, and as you mature, you, you just kind of, learn to take things a little bit at a time, especially a situation like this, because it's not, it's not going to unfold super rapidly. It's going to come in pieces. And so it's very much like a chess game, in my opinion. Um, and everybody has, you know, like any chess game where everybody gathers around to watch, everybody has their opinion on the best move to make. So, uh, you know, it's just one of those situations. Unfortunately, it, you know, there's innocent people involved and that's the part that, is uh, hard for me, but, you know, my son has been asking me about drafts and I'm like, you're 11. Don't, you know, we don't need to have this conversation, but, you know, it's good that he's interested and he wants to understand. Um, It really boils down to he's worried, you know, he sees these things and he's worried about it. So. And we have to check in on our people on that and our children, because we should be worried. Um. You know, this is a democratic, you know, sovereign state that is 50% of the wheat production for Europe. Um, And I'm I'm going to talk about this 
with the driller magazine this upcoming week, but you know, within three hours of invading the first thing the Russian troops did was open the canal to Crimea. So, you know, if you go back and you look at Reuters and Al Jazeera and everything from first time I saw the story was 2018 when uh, Crimea wasn't paying their water bill is how it was pointed out. And Ukraine shut the water off, which was 85% of the water that Crimea got for their crops and their people. And so Russia has been trying to drill wells and they've been bringing water in from Russia. And um, yeah, one of the first strategic moves made coming in from Crimea was to open the water canal back up to Crimea. So you got the water infrastructure aspect of this. You know, that's um, part of this. You got wheat production in Ukraine and it's, it's weird. When the, the twin towers fell, it was like, go, go, go. Right. You were, how old were you when you called up and tried to join? Uh, I think I was. I think it was my son's age. I think I was like 11. Right. I love that story. Um, and so here we are and we're seeing, we're seeing something that in both of our generations, we haven't seen a European, you know, a third or fourth largest fighting force in the world mobilizing and, you know, a country of 40 million size of Texas trying to defend themselves. And we're seeing, you know, I, I follow a couple breweries over in Ukraine because uh, there's, you know, craft beer has made a major influence. Not that there has always been beer breweries in Europe, but the craft beer scene has become much bigger. And uh, Pravada Brewery had a picture yesterday of some of their green bottles that they put some sours and different, you know, barrel age programs into that had wicks out of them and said, uh, today we're not bottling beer. We'll get back to that sometime. But right now we're, you know, (laughs) making Molotov cocktails to fight, you know, and, uh, you read their, their Facebook posts because like American craft breweries, they're very like, big on social media. Again, we have this country that has first world infrastructure of internet and cell phones and stuff. And so the breweries like uh, free coffee and tea to all of those who are fighting, uh, please bring your papers because if you're from Belarus or Russia, you will not be permitted in our establishment. Uh, Here are the following breweries that have opened their basements for safety you know it's just things that we don't think about and then you see uh the clutch co brothers who were both heavyweight boxers at one point vladimir was heavyweight champion in the world i'm not sure about his brother but you know that his brother's on the front lines fighting and vladimir had a post on linkedin about we need help we you know this is democracy and so that we're concerned about our children. And Dave earlier today said the same thing. And his kids are 
18, 20, and 22. Um, every male that's 18 to 60 right now, that's a Ukrainian citizen, isn't allowed to leave. You know? Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's something I try to not really not throw in the face of younger people, but reiterate the importance of, uh, you know, being appreciative of, of where we live and, and the freedoms we enjoy here, you know, because, um, it would be very difficult for somebody to, you know, as you always mention, all the veterans that are all the Vietnam veterans that own weapons, you know, it would be hard to go through those folks. If anybody decided that they, uh, wanted to make an ill-advised decision, you know, to come here, uh, and so I, I think that's one thing I've, you know, wondered is how do these countries that don't necessarily, you know, um, have that mindset that this is our country, you know, all the time. I think, I think since 9-11 happened, Americans have had this mentality the last 22 years, 20 years, uh, that this is our country and we're not going to, you know, and so it's reiterating that to to younger leaders and making sure that they are aware that we're not invincible so you need to have a ready mindset <clears throat> i think uh, oh i'm sorry go ahead no you're good i was just gonna say that's important in my opinion what's we're in our bubble you know we got we got two big oceans we have a massive you know uh security force we have satellite we have the best technology in the world when it comes to these things um thursday as i i got sick of listening to the journalists on cnn or fox or whomever going back and forth about what what is being done what is being said um i thought about what's going on in europe so I jumped over to BBC and they had parliament in session, which had Boris Johnson being asked questions after he'd come back from a discussion with NATO and UN, along with the Americans being there and whatnot. And it was almost two hours of each party asking him questions and also saying the support and, you know, they were pushing the sanctions. And so, you know, I, you look at Boris Johnson, he's got that, like, uh, I don't know, like his haircut and, and like the Gary, like Gary Busey became prime minister and never was in a car accident type thing. <laughs> but you listen to him discuss and I, I'm almost disappointed in how our Congress works versus he stood up there, you know, very similar to what the president of the United States would be. And he fielded questions for two hours back and forth and went, you know, respectfully. And when the questions were not respectful, he'd say, I disagree with you. You know, and there were people in the background, you know, I, it was, 
it was surreal to listen to them talk about it because they've been part, a major part of the last world war. And they understand how quickly these things escalate and how they're going to support and how they're helping. And the Russian oligarchs that own buildings in London, you know, and how their, their, their cyber crimes and their, you know, cryptography, um, currency stuff that they're doing, you know, the only way they can stop this is to make sure the people that have the funding can't continue to be untouched. Um, and it's, I don't know. I, uh, from a leadership standpoint, listening to them, you know, in parliament discuss this is way different than what we hear in the United States right now, where we hear people saying, it's bold for Putin to do what he's doing or the other, you know, absurd aspects of this. It's, it's, uh, you know, as I watch it, I mean, I, I imagine this is probably what it was like uh, leading up to world war two, the, you know, I'm not saying that Boris Johnson is a Winston Churchill, but I feel like he's in a position that's similar where he's, he understands the history and he has to stand up and, uh, it just seems like a lot of the leaders in our country are, for lack of better words, disinterested, right? I mean, they're saying things, but they don't seem to carry really any weight, you know? And when you live in a, a, a group of countries like Europe that has experienced, I mean, they've experienced more warfare probably than any other continent uh, in history, if, you know, going back. I mean, they've, it's always started on their their land and escalated to wherever it was going to go um it's just interesting to me you know that after world war ii you know and i mentioned this i think last time or in previous episode that there was a point in time where you know troops in the pacific that were going to attack japan you know pilots that went down they fled into china which was friendly to our troops. They took refugee, you know, they took refuge in China and, you know, we combined forces with Russia to defeat, you know, Germany. Right. And so it's just, it's so interesting that it seems like we, we don't ever really learn from what we've experienced. You know, we just keep repeating things and who plays what role in the, in the scenario changes. Right. So it's just, it's interesting to see. And I think it's, you know, right now everybody's trying to run a delicate balance of their decision-making, you know, and going back to the chess analogy, it's, it's that moment in the game where you say, are we going to swap Queens? You know, are we going to swap them or are we going to keep dancing around and see what happens? And I don't envy the leaders of the world because you know, any decision you make is going to have complications with it. So it's really going back to last episode, their calculated risks. Yeah. It's how do we, uh, you know, we just danced for 28 months and it's still coming down from COVID, you know, where people were very, split down the middle of 
what is right? What is wrong? Do we open? Do we not open? Do we vaccinate? Do we not vaccinate? Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Um, and, you know, even this morning when I went to get eggs and stuff for breakfast, I love making breakfast for the family on Sunday mornings. Um, in the store, it was like individuals saying, we've given them $350 million. We've given them money before they have all their oil and gas money. Why are we, why are we supporting them? Let, you know, it used to be part of Russia. Let it just be part of Russia again, you know, and it's, um, easy to, it's easy to say that when you're sitting over here, right? Well, there's Americans over there. There's Americans that have made family over there. We have, you know, we're a melting pot of, you know, the European and the rest of the world. Um, it is, I, I don't think anybody should be hurt. You know, I think everybody should have good leaders. You know, I think everybody should have, you know, the conditions that they, they want. And it's very, it's, um, it's difficult, you know, if we can split the line on, it's your choice to get vaccinated or not. Now will the line be, well, it was their choice to be Ukrainian citizens and live there. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, going back to, you know, you brought up the pandemic and everything. And I think that's the hard part for me is that, you know, here we are just trying to emerge from something that was difficult for everybody. And why, why would a leader of a, of a large country decide that, well, I'm just going to make this choice and, uh, you know, drag the whole world into something that doesn't really benefit anyone. I mean, I don't see the, I don't really see the, the benefit that to me is the hard part. Like, even if you have an enemy or you disagree, like normally you can see, well, okay, this is the benefit for them. What is the benefit to Russia for doing this? Like, I don't know. Water, wheat. Yeah. Uh, Keeping, keeping their line. You know, Russia has a seat on the UN and has, you know, agreements with NATO. And if if you're not up to nefarious things, what, why are you worried about NATO being closer? You know what? I don't. It's uh we've we've taken a hard right in our our leadership talk into uh what the hell is going on in the world, but also um as leaders, we need to be able to have these talks with our people, you know, because I think part of it is just being able to say, say what you need to say and be heard and what you're thinking about it. And, you know, I got a Ukrainian uh, friend who was an exchange student at my high school that, you know, I reached out on Facebook and um, they said, you know, we're in the suburbs. We're okay. You know, this is, you know, crazy, but we will fight and defend our country. And I didn't think my, you know, Ukrainian 
exchange student would be the one 20 years later saying that to me, you know, maybe my Laos exchange student friend or, you know, somewhere else. I just, um, we're, the differences right now, and this is back to the workforce and everything, we're more connected globally than we ever have been before. If it was World War II and you could have TikToked the German bombers coming in, would more people have mobilized? At the same time, if the pandemic of the 20s had happened and people were asked to ration and somebody was able to tweet, we don't need to ration. I know they got a barn full of food. Why are we doing these things? You know, like, um, we need leadership that's face-to-face, not, not digital, but we need to recognize that digital is directly impacting or undermining or affecting everything we say and do. Yeah, I mean, digital communication is a tool, right? And every tool, a hammer can be used for good just as it can be used for bad. Because you can do some pretty gnarly things with a hammer if you wanted to hurt somebody, right? So um, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, we should see more of these more leaders out front. Uh, you know, when you accept a leadership role, you you don't just accept the good times. You accept responsibility that you're going to have to be out front and you're going to have to deal with the hard situations and the hard questions that come with it. Uh, and I think a lot of people, um, you know, are judging, you know, our leadership here and rightfully so, because, you know, they don't seem to be out in front. They don't seem to be, yeah, it's real easy for someone to get on Twitter. The, the downside of digital communication is that everybody has the opportunity to act like they're an expert or a leader on their own. You know, just because you push words out into the digital sphere, you know, and and we saw that with the pandemic, we've, you know, we've seen that emerge that people become self-proclaimed, you know, experts on things. And it's like, you're doing more damage than you are good. But, you know, if, if we had leadership, maybe that got out in front of these things and uh, was a... I don't want to say strong is the word, but a um, an active or a proactive voice, um, then perhaps maybe people would stop talking so much and maybe listen a little more. And uh, I put I put quotes on the work on the board at work. You know, I write on the whiteboard because everybody likes my quotes that I come up with. Um, and the one I put up last week was from Mark Twain, and it said. If we were supposed to talk more than we listen, we would have two tongues and one ear. And I thought that was really, really, I think Mark Twain was, you know, he's one of my favorite writers. So without a doubt. <clears throat> um, on that note, there's a couple things. Um, have you ever seen the Dwight Eisenhower? Eisenhower. Why can't I say his name right now? Uh, I have not started drinking. Um, 
his performance review of General Patton? I have not. Um, I want to pull it up, but it also comes after Eisenhower had to have a discussion with Patton about slapping officers in the field. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, knowing what I know about Patton, I I would not imagine that uh, would be a false story. That sounds like something along the lines of his style. And I, I just like, what does it take to, as a, you know, um, as the senior leader having to go to one of your top leaders and say, please stop slapping officers in the field who should be middle management. What, what does that, what does that say about, you know, what's happening? Well, I mean, it's, it's a good thing they didn't have social media back then. Cause I think if the world might've known that, then, uh, I don't know. They might've had a problem with it. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe back then the sentiment was a little different, but uh, I don't know. Just back then I, you know, I've heard people say that uh, we, it's not likely that we will have um, senior leaders or presidents that will be military members because they're too brutally honest for people to deal with and, I don't know. Is there a degree of truth to that? Because I've sat in a lot of meetings with senior leaders where we just say it like it is, you know, it's just, that's, if somebody's doing a bad job or, you know, it's just very much, you know, obviously officers aren't slapping each other anymore, but uh, it's still brutally honest. I mean, the discussions that happens because, you know, when you're conducting operations or you're trying to do projects or carry out missions, you don't have time, you know, a lot of time, um, you know, for lengthy discussions and things like that. You just got to often you just have to move even when you're not 100 percent ready to move. So. This is September 1st, 19. 19- 44 is the stamp on it. It says it was written July 1st, 1944. It says efficiency report, adjunct general, Washington, D.C. This is Eisenhower writing this. Um, it says George S. Patton, period January 26, 1944 to June 30th, 1944. Duties performed, commanding general, 3rd U.S. Army. Manner of performance, superior. Physical activity, superior. Physical endurance, superior. Knowledge of his profession, superior. I would specifically recommend him for Army Command. Opportunities for observing officer during period of this report, frequent and intimate contacts. Officer does render willing and generous support to plans of his superiors, regardless of his personal views in the matter, regardless of his personal views in this matter. Of the 26 general officers of his grade personally known to me, I would list General Patton as number two as Army commander and number eight in general rating. 
So of the, <laughs> you know, he's number eight. There's furthermore, a brilliant fighter and leader, impulsive and quick tempered, likely to speak in public in an ill-considered fashion. It means he used a lot of colorful language. Uh, yeah, and you don't want to ask him to speak <laughs> on behalf of our, our, you know. He's, our not the, our, he's not the press conference guy. No, no. You know, and just in the fact of, please stop slapping officers in the field. Yeah, he has a quote that is, uh, when I need my guys – or when I need my soldiers to remember it, I give it to them double dirty. You know, that the use of the F word makes people remember things more importantly. Um, but, you know, he got it done on multiple continents. Yeah. I, I wonder who he was number two to, like who was number one. You know, because they still stratify officers like that. So when you get your performance report, still, you still really. Get- so you see, you see your performance report, and it says that there's officers better than you, but you're better than some officers too. It doesn't tell you who, but it tells you those numbers. I would just be curious to who was better than Patton. <laughs> um. Yeah. And that's performance reviews. We don't, you know, we've talked about it a little bit on here, but we don't let people know when they're doing well, you know, we, and then we let it fester to a point of we either take responsibilities away from somebody or we terminate them. And I I would like to shift gears out of world politics and, have that discussion from a construction standpoint um, how can we simplify that? How can we, if I am a construction company of 15 people or I'm a construction company of 500 people, how do I, how do I make sure that I'm getting to, cause you know, you started from somewhere. And if you're a company that's privately owned, there's some family aspect there and there's some Sunday night dinners that turn into discussions on why a project took longer than it should have, where that's the performance review, but that's father, son, mother, son, grandpa, son, and grandson. You know, why did we blow the margin on this project here? But again, we don't have a workforce that is our family anymore. You know, we do some, but how do we, how do we do that? You know, I, I know with my shift in my career to environment, health and safety, um, we have a very structured performance review with goals that need to be made and this and that. It gets all done. And then, you know, I get an email that says, because you, you know, met or exceeded expectations, this is what we're going to give you for, you know, an incentive. And I'm like, I don't, 
I don't know what this is weighted in or how we got here. I'm, I'm like, cool. But at the same time, you know, like, <laughs> um, number two for army commander and number eight in general rating. <laughs> yeah. What, what could I have done eight times better to have been number one? Yeah. I, um, you know, in that situation, I think, uh, I don't know how they would weigh that in the middle of a conflict like that. You know, how, how do you rate performance? Um, I think a lot of it begins with, with having clear expectations and really laying those out. I think that's something that a lot of leaders don't do. I mean, they may do the paperwork, which is the bare minimum requirement that, you know, most companies and most organizations have paperwork uh, and they have a process in place to do performance reviews. Uh, but I don't think, and it, it's still the case in the military. It's been the case ever since I got in that they don't, they don't really uh, add much value in my opinion. It was something that I personally uh, would take the time to do with my uh, senior enlisted leaders that I was responsible for um, really sitting down, laying out specifically what I expected. Um, you know, I think people, you know, see the documentation piece as well. I've done my job. I documented it, but um, really it goes beyond that. You know, you, you need to be, it's like when you start a project scope of work needs to be as specific as possible because whether or not the customer is satisfied with our performance at the end is based on whether or not we accomplished everything that they wanted. So it's the same thing with an employee. You know, you have to be as specific as possible uh, at the outset of that employees, you know, whether it's a new project or they're new uh, to the company, because how, how the hell else are you going to judge them? Uh, and how is it going to be a fair judgment? Um, and I think workers are starting to realize that, uh, hey, you can't penalize me because you didn't, there is no, you just have this piece of paper and there's no formal you haven't specifically designated what I was supposed to do. So how can you hold me accountable for something you never explained to me? Uh, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? So I've been lucky enough since, uh, since you came with me to the mountain States groundwater show, which I guess would have been just pre pandemic 2020, right? Yeah. Somewhere in there. Um, um yeah, I'm pretty sure it was early 2020. I got to teach that a couple times. Um, my hiring, training, retaining the 21st century driller or employee. And in that, I've continued to tweak that talk and I've, I've done some writing. And after the National Groundwater Conference, there was a discussion, well, how do we, how do we set up so that we're retaining them or how do we tell them, how do we give them greater expectations? Uh, and I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I just talked to Dave about it a little bit, you know, um, in a simple form, because it's really easy to get into a personal performance review or all of these big, you know, behavioral psychology. We're going to give you company goals. We're going to give you time to make individual goals throw it all out and do 
double dirty like Patton would do. No, not really double dirty, but you know, that performance review that I found of Eisenhower is one page. Um, but I think there's so much reflection and milestones that need to happen. If I bring in a new hire after the first five days of them being with the company, we sit down and I hand them a three by five note card. And I say, right, five goals that you want to accomplish in the next 30 days. Don't coach them. Don't just let them with the first five days of being with the company. If they're experienced in the industry or not, just let them write down five goals. Flip the card over. And then me as supervisor, owner, lead, the owner needs to be involved. Senior management needs to be involved along with whoever's going to directly impact their day-to-day. And if there needs to be more than one three-by-five card, fine. But there needs to be company expectations and leadership expectations in the field. And the construction industry, we're so self-taught and tribal about things. And it's about learning in the field. It is 100% about field learning, but we don't ever do anything the same way twice. So you have you have this employee that gets to write down five things. We're not even going to read them. We flip the card over. We write down goal one. This goal is for them to complete in the first 30 days of employment. And if you want to make it the first 35 days, because we just did, you know, 30 days. And then we're going to make a meeting for that, you know, 30-day meeting. And then next, I want two goals that are to be completed within six months. Again, these can be safety policy. These can be CDL. These can be skill improvement. There's plenty of places this can go. And then the final two goals are to be completed by the end of the year. And we put dates when we're going to meet to discuss, and we have to, we have to meet those. And I know I've said this in other discussions with us, but if we're going to be invested in our people and we say, we're going to meet Friday at 9am, March 30th, definitely don't want to put Friday at 9am, February 30th, because we've already blown that date. (laughs) So we meet that first meeting we look at their five goals and we go, you know, we use your simple after action review. What was expected to happen? What really happened? How do we do better next time? The idea with them getting to create their first five goals after seeing what, what the business is like is construction is insanely complicated. There's lots of things to learn. There's not anything you shouldn't be. You should be, on your way to improving, but in your first 30 days or 35 days, you're just like getting your eyes open to the entire organization. Right. Yeah. And I believe it was, it's humbling to look at this list of things that look what I put down that I wanted to be doing. If that's, I wanted to be finishing a wall by myself or, you know, laying out the electrical components for this next job or, you know, whatever tasks they want, want to get to, if it's achieving a CDL is really hard to do. And 
30 days with now the idea that you have to go to an actual technical school to do it and you have to get a physical and there's a lot of aspects that go into that investment. So we look at what they have and uh, we immediately say before we get into our discussion of our one goal and then two and two, what do you want to change right now? We pull out a new note card. I want this note card to be photocopied and laminated. And by the way, if the employee shows up on day 30 or day 35 for the meeting and they've lost their card, it's a big reflection on where are we going in six months, right? Yeah, just don't just don't slap them like like Patton did. Don't slap them like Patton. Well, no, you wouldn't <laughs> slap you wouldn't slap the you know the private first class, right? Right. No, you'd slap the the driller, the, the NCO that should have made sure they didn't lose their card. Um, actually, probably never slapped any NCOs. I'm expecting it was captains and lieutenants. You know, in World War II, these guys all coming out of college fresh and being, you talk about this a lot. You know, this is the David Schwimmer that he slaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so they, they've brought their card. We're looking at it. We go, what would you like to change to be met in the next six months? And they can take anything off there. It's not, it's about them seeing that they get to make their path and that, you know, it's, there's a lot to be learned. Then we flip over to our side and we, we go, so did we hit the first, you know, 30 day goal? Yes. Excellent. Let's add another one. What, what happened? Why not? You know, what, what was expected to happen? What really happened? How do we do better next time? And then we look at those six months and one year goals and we have that discussion and we use my, my favorite. Do you like your job? Do you feel safe? What do you want to do next? You know, and then you wait and you do it all over again at six months and you meet and you revise and you, you cross out, you know, you, it's a possibility that you give more responsibility to that person or they get, you know, a a pay increase for getting that CDL, you know, and then we hit it at a year and really you could do this with all of your team just five questions and the same you got somebody that's been with the company 15 years and they're just flat at what they're doing write down five things you want to have happen this year personally you know and there's plenty of systems out there that just use that that note card and uh there was a motivational speaker a few years ago that said he was talking about you know goals and whatnot and running into um a man that was at his motivational talk and um, he goes, so did you make, did you make all five of your goals? You know, it was for like sales or something. And he's like, yeah, it was awesome. And so uh, Mike goes, the system works, right? He's like, yeah. Do you have any more of those note cards? Yeah. Um, I, I like it because um Simplifying, I think often we overcomplicate a lot of processes in our industry, not just how we treat our people. I think uh, process improvement 
you know, it's, it's somewhat easier to do in something like manufacturing, right? Because all the processes are, uh, you can view them, you can, uh, it's a little easier to kind of collect the data and make the decision, run the analysis, but in construction, you know, every job is different. Um, and the, uh, the exterior or the external forces that come into play, like it's very, you know, it's almost like you have to do it for each job, you know, process improvement of each, each project. Uh, but simplification, you know, of the, of the, uh, performance review, whatever process you want to call it. Uh, I think a lot of times leaders get turned off to investing in that process because uh, doing the paperwork is such a pain, right? Like those, I can, uh, I can verify that uh, performance reviews in the military are no longer one sheet. They've gone to two sheets. So they increase the amount of paperwork that someone has to do, which is, uh, you know, a good example is the fact that officers really, um, I had to write all of my own performance reviews. I never had a super well until I had this most recent supervisor, uh, in the reserves. But, uh, during all my time on active duty, I never had anybody write my performance review, which to me, uh, was very, honestly, it was hurtful because it was like, you're supposed to be someone who's leading me and observing what I have done. And you can't even, you can't even take the time to write a, a few sentences about what I've done over the last year. Um, and I like this system uh, because it simplifies that, you know, it, it allows the leader to be involved uh, in the process and it allows the person to be involved in the process. Like you said, I think in many industries, people say, well, you can make your career what you want it to be, but we don't ever empower people to do that. You know, instead we we say that to them, and then we give them checklists and things they need to check off to, you know, advance their skill sets or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it's like we say one thing and we do do something completely opposite. Uh, whereas this system that you're talking about, uh, it really allows you to see what a person wants to do instead of you just, uh, you know, that 15 year employee that you talked about being kind of flat that to me that happens because instead of actually letting someone drive their career, we have figured out the skill set that they're naturally good at and just pigeonhole them in that for their entire career. And that's how people end up getting disgruntled or uh, you know, they don't buy in. They just, and it's sad because this industry is a lot of fun and there is a lot of things you can do. You can really make your own career. Um, depending on what you're passionate about. And so uh, I agree. That's a direction we need to go because that encourages people to want to work in construction and, and drilling and things like that. It's, it's wild. So because of our workforce shortage in the age gap and not understanding how to use adaptive leadership effectively or at all, you know, even in our last discussion, in our last episode, you know, we were saying a lot of good things, but um, sky working in academia and collegiate sports was saying some good things, but at the same time, you know, talking about how this, it's hard. He's like, it's hard working with this younger generation. And, you know, I've never, I've never thought that way. I have always thought like, 
getting the latest iPhone. Not that a person is an object, but I now have better, faster, smarter technology. I have a better, faster, smarter human that's learned the latest processes to make us better. You know, and that's not how we work in any career field. You know, it's very rare. Instead, it's like, wow, they're so young. How did they get to that point? But furthermore, the the Myers-Briggs system or the DISC system or all of these, you know, Lean Six Sigma, Black Belt Six Sigma, you know, all we're about is trying to figure out how to put order or cookie cutter boxes to, to how we how we lead people, how we review people, how people should react. You, the system's in place. Just do it. Just, just be a robot. But we're not. We're, we're human. We, we sometimes have to slap an officer in the field. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and sometimes that, that officer's boss has to come down and say, like, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, and it's a performance review shouldn't take you four hours to, for the employee to complete or the leader to complete. And if you can't do that performance review in front of that person at that time, what are we doing? How are we supposed to improve? You know, sure, there's an aspect that we may hurt somebody's feelings. Sure, there's an aspect where, you know, we we get that moment of going, we got to improve what you're doing right now, or you're not going to fit our our organization. And that that person, you know, it's so funny. I go back and forth between they've been pigeonholed into this position because of their ability to be the only one to do it, or they have a glass ceiling because of this aspect. And there are those company cultures, but in construction, in many, you know, many facet type jobs, if you're pigeonholed because you're the only person that can do it. How did that happen? Yes, there's a leadership component in there that has allowed it to happen. But also, there's somewhere of not passing knowledge right in here in your heart and mind that would have allowed that, you know, in the way of going, I might get hit by a bus, I might get COVID and die. Somebody else has to be able to do what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting going back to, you know, last week we talked about sports and we talk about sports a lot, but you know, one thing I noticed with a lot of other coaches that I interact with um, is a lot of the first things that they say to me are the negative aspects of kids on the field. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, why is it automatically the first thing you look for is the negative aspects of this person, 
you know, you look at that person and see that, but I look at this kid and I see X, Y, and Z tools that he has that are already good. And sure, maybe there's things to work on, but I'm looking for, you know, that's why, you know, everybody, um, you know, like her, everybody criticized her Brooks or Billy Bean. And these are guys that, uh, you know, people ask her Brooks, they said, you don't even have the best players that are at this tryout on your roster. He said, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right players. And Billy Bean, you know, he was, couldn't control the external situation, right? He couldn't control the fact that the team was broke and they didn't have as much money as the New York Yankees. Uh, so what did he do? He went out and he took a risk and he found this guy and he tried this strategy, which changed the game of baseball forever. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you that you can't apply cookie cutter solutions to human resources. It's because human beings are, they're not objects, you know, and it's like you said, instead of, you know, looking at, I I feel like people hire younger people and they're so quick to part ways with them or get frustrated with them because, um, you know, they're just, they're looking at, things as negative, which they may not even be negatives, may not even be a negative about persons, just something different that they've never encountered before, or they don't think is useful. And I think that's where we get caught up in this. Uh, we talk about it all the time that construction industries seem to be stalled between two ways of thinking. Uh, and that prevents us from moving forward because we're so fixated on uh, resistance to change. And, you know, we focus on such negative portions of people. Well, well, they're always younger people are always tied to their phones or they're always this, or they're always that. Well, the flip side to that is like you said, we have somebody who can do things faster and smarter and teach us new ways to do things. So why are we so pessimistic about people? You're absolutely right. And, um, I know we've made this comment before, but the irony of calling something human resources, you know, is that their resource for the employee is the employee, the resource that is not renewable. Like what are, are we just mining everything we need out of them until they're just a shell? (laughs) And we then get the next group. Um, in order for us to work with Generation Z and then Alpha, um, they need validation. They need validation often. And I know we've learned in safety and other things that if we're going to tell them something bad, we got to make sure we put two positives to it, you know, and that that's the solution. That was like the rule because the doomer that has been running the company for the last, you know, 20 plus years um, had the grandfather who got slapped by Patton, you know, yeah. and, or father and they were the ones that was told that 
you know, this is, you know, you have to say these things, you know, back to that whole uh, discussion we've had on soft skills. Like I need to work on my soft skills. (laughs) You you need to work (laughs) on being human. You need to work on empathy and sympathy and trying to figure out where somebody comes from. It shouldn't be called. Maybe it should be called, I should work on my hard skills of, you know, understanding that they're, they're not a resource. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the whole, uh, positive sandwich is what we used to call it in the military is positive, negative, positive. Um, you know, I don't like that they apply or try to apply a cookie cutter mentality to the communication. Uh, but it, it does, you know, it does typically bode well to approach a conversation and not open it with slapping somebody in the face or the equivalent of saying something that's a slap in the face. Because, you know, there, there is some value to that. But do you have to do it in this cookie cutter way? You know, I do it on the field coaching all the time. You know, I, I and they actually teach it in coaches. You know, I had to take coaches training to coach at the high school level. I had to sit through like a hour and a half class of how to, how to be a coach, um, which is good because, you know, I think there should be some form of, you shouldn't slap people kind of training. Um, but a lot of, you know, they go through, they show videos of drills, um, and how to correct somebody when they're not doing what you want them to do. And, um, you know, you just, start out with a positive. You don't walk over and say, you're an idiot and you're running this play wrong. You say, I really like that you did this, but you know, this is the drill. Of course, if it's my son on the field, he's not, not going to listen to me because he just likes to get under my skin and drive me nuts, which I've learned. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild. And I understand why they have to do a, it was, how long was the coaching class? It was like an hour and a half. It's uh, an <laughs> NFHS. So it's the national federation of, I don't know. I don't even, I should know what it stands for, but yeah, it was like an hour and a half of basically how to be a decent human being as a coach. And really, it sounds like we should all probably take this class. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, um, Again, we've we've said this a lot, and I think it's something that needs to be deep dived on. You know, Simon and Yako and many of the great authors out there write about leadership and the dichotomy of leadership. Or uh, Simon and Yako, Yako lived it in Ramadi, and Simon has interviewed soldiers around the world about that brotherhood and, you know, that leadership aspect and all of it comes back to heart and soul and empathy on why, why we're doing that. Right. And, uh, we, we don't, but again, we, we need to know how to, we need to treat everybody like they're a family member, I guess, is the, the best way to put it, we've, we've separated it and coaches 
coaches need to understand that they're developing a generation that's going to either be that type of coach or not. They're, they're a father figure. They are. Yeah. I told my wife yesterday, I have lots of, I have lots of sons because I've coached and I've mentored youth, you know, for several years now. I mean, I, I mean, you know, at church and stuff, some of the, some of the folks are obviously girls, but I say, you, you know, men's sports, I've, I've got a lot of sons and, uh, it's something I take a lot of pride in and really trying to understand, you know, what is different about them and how I can best, uh, reach them, you know, uh, so they don't turn off their ears, you know, uh, and it's different. It, it's really different for, for every one of them, you know, they're all unique. And I think, I think, uh, when we talk about people, we need to remember that, that everybody is unique. So I found it the day Patton slapped an officer. There was only one day. Um, so this says the investigation of the matter with the battery commander and Sergeant Bennett, who is the one that got slapped, indicated that the chaplain had reportedly reported accurately that there was no doubt about it. Lieutenant General George S. Patton, while on tour of nearby U.S. military hospitals, had accused Bennett of malingering. No, mal- I'm not really sure what he accused him of, but without waiting for explanation, had slapped him several times across the face as he lay in his hospital cot. Okay, so this guy had malaria and he had been serving with Patton for two years. And uh, he wanted him back uh, in the field. I guess that's not as... You know, um, I guess he got up and went back to the front line. So I get, you know, so that's a, that's a totally different level there. Like I wouldn't slap somebody, but I think there's a moment where you got to shake somebody and say like, you almost died today or I need your head back in the game. You know, there's uh for this, for this man, you know, being part of the, you know, Patton's uh, 17th field artillery for two years, you know, and um, he'd gotten malaria and malaria is bad, but he must've been really good at his job and Patton's slapping him and telling him to get back to the front line. I need you. You know, um, uh, well, again, that goes back to what you were saying. Like, where's the breakdown? Because there should have been somebody else as capable of doing his job in the chain of command, right? So the fact that a lieutenant general has to come along and slap some slap the one person who can do this job, like, you know. This piece says, Patton exploded. A hospital staff looked on in disbelief. The general yanked the soldier to his feet and called him a coward and slapped him. 
That's a that's a 1940s TikTok moment right there. I again, yeah. And that's uh we talked last week. That's uh Babcock, you know, that's <laughs> a couple different levels of tough love. And um I guess that's a horrible term, right? Tough love. I don't even know if there was love involved, but right, right. Um we all have stakes and we all react in different ways and uh, keeping our composure, checking our ego. Um, there's a lot of stakes when you're, when you're pushing on Sicily <laughs> and you need your artillery, you know, this isn't, did you get that third wall up so we can set trusses next week type situation? Yeah, but, you know, some people still treat it like it is that situation. Some leaders still do, you know, and, uh, they, you know, they treat it like we're we're trying to storm the beaches of Normandy when we're, you know, it's at that level. It's as leaders, we need to understand the context of of what's going on and uh, appropriately communicate uh, to people, um, you know, if they mess up, we need to have the, the correct context uh, so as not to yank somebody to their feet and slap them. If, if it's just a missed, you know, um, a missed date on the schedule or, you know, if there's a delay in something, uh, we need to find the root cause really is what we need to get after instead of just berating people and blaming people. Because I've been on job sites with leaders like that and it's not. It's not enjoyable and it's an easy, easy way to lose, uh, lose the trust and focus of the people on the team. So, you know, that's a great point. And that's um, where we should start our wrap up. But if you're a senior leadership, like Eisenhower, Eisenhower addressed it, addressed this whole situation. Apparently the chaplain is the one that was the only one that felt that he he could go say, um, everybody, uh, <laughs> Lieutenant General Patton just slapped a man in the hospital and yanked him to his feet or yanked him to his feet. Uh, this probably needs to be discussed, you know? So we as leaders have to look at that middle management and see how they're treating, you know, our next developing group. And be able to step in, even if it is, it's your fault that we didn't get the trusses set today. Or is it really, it's all our fault. You know, as, as leadership, we should trust the team to be capable. No different than when you were building the airfield, right? And you told them the amount of time it should take. And you knew being in Tonopah, you're wearing a Tonopah brewing company hat. Um, I've been to Tonopah. I've drilled. No, I take that back. I stayed in Tonopah. I worked two hours in the middle of nowhere, which in any other real world situation would have been three hours in the middle of nowhere, but there's no speed limits out there. There's just cattle and roads and like buildings that have fallen down that used to be smelters for mining (laughs) and like desolation. But so here you have this team in desolation. Ultimately, it's your fault 
if we don't finish, but it's somewhere in the middle, our leadership loses sight of that. And it's just as easy to say, Brian's the one that didn't, you know, check the oil on the grader today and, you know, it seized up and now we're not going to be able to continue until we get a mechanic out here into the middle of nowhere. But is it Brian's fault or did we miss an SOP or what, what happened? Again, it's back to that accountability. We can't hold others accountable until we hold ourselves accountable. Yeah. And I, you know, on that particular project, those things did happen. Uh, but we never, you know, my mechanic was the most important person on that project. Um, and if I had, if I didn't have his buy-in, uh, we had zero missed days for equipment failure. I mean, we had equipment fail, but we had zero missed scheduled days. Um, and a lot of that was, was because, um, I provided the cover for these guys. So if something did go wrong, I I did ultimately accept responsibility for it. Now that didn't mean that I didn't have discussions with people and say, Hey, look, uh, next time you need to do this, or this is, you know, why did we do it this way? Or, you know, to find the root cause. But um, to me that my role was to protect them from anybody that uh, was going to try and uh, disjoint them from the team, you know, uh, and the best officers, in my opinion, are the ones that did that. The ones that you don't talk to my troops, you don't talk to my team. I talk to my team. And that's what I would say to people. You don't ever come on my job site and talk to my people. You know, you can come interact with them, but don't correct my people. Don't come out here and you know, if you have something that you want to pass along to my people, you say it to me. Um, and to me, the leaders that don't do that are the ones who are are not accountable uh, because ultimately the responsibility does rest with the leader. Unless it's Lieutenant General Patton walking into a hospital. <laughs> I So, I, you know. No, I'm me- just kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. No, it makes me wonder. So John Blackjack Pershing was another famous general in that time frame. So I wonder, I wonder if he might be, uh, I don't know. I'd have to check the history because uh, Pershing was a pretty incredible guy too, that nobody really talks about. Um, so maybe he was the number one. I don't know. I, I genuinely want to know who, who was the number one rated officer in that twenty six. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, we've covered a large swath of, uh, you know, the events. Um, I want your help to continue to hone my three by five card. I truly believe, um, it actually, I take that back. I say three by five because I write big and that's appropriate. But if I, if I've learned anything about this damn pandemic, the, the, uh, COVID vaccine card is too big to put in my wallet. And now I want to go to concerts and stuff. And I'm always like, I'm going to lose it. 
I'm going to lose it. And matter of fact, I did lose my first vaccine card because uh, it was in my back pocket while I was with my father in the hospital and all the PPE changes and stuff. Somehow it, it came out and was gone. But when I went to get boosted, they re-gave me a new one. And I had my a big sheet for my all my, you know, immunization records of everything that I asked for because I was like, I need to go to Canada. I need to do these things. And I've lost this card now that I've just went on a rant about a card, but I don't think it should be an app. I don't think it needs to be a spreadsheet. I don't think it needs to be. I want it to be physical, laminated, and something that we we keep. If it's take a photo of it and it's in your phone, then you keep the real one in your locker and the dash of your truck or whatever. But there's something about that 19th century or 20th century concept of writing it together. And I know you're, you're more old fashioned than me. So yeah, you'll like this. I, uh, at work, I found in the office supply cabinet, a Rolodex and I put it on my desk and I use, I use it. And everybody that walks by is like, are you even old enough to understand, like to know when that was actually used? And I'm like, I, yes, I know what a Rolodex is. Uh, but yes, I agree. Like there's something personal about uh, handwriting things and uh, all of my projects. I keep a paper handwritten folder, like a case. It's like a case file for every one of my projects. And people are like, why do you do that? And I say, well, because I like to physically carry something when I go to the job site and I can flip through and I can see where I wrote notes. Um, and yes, is digital assets, are they great? Sure. I mean, I could take notes on my tablet and it could go to my computer just the same. But uh, to me, seeing the, you know, and putting the folder when the project is complete in the drawer where I put all my projects that are complete, to me, it's a, a physical, um, I don't know, I, I don't know the right word to describe it. But same thing for the three by five card, I agree. It's, there's so many apps for everything that uh, very rarely do we have the human transfer of something physically. I'm going to hand you this. Uh, and it's an interaction between us. Maybe it's going to be the leaders drink last uh, performance review. I like it. You know, McConaughey. It can be put, shaped like a hand. No. Yeah, that's a good one. Or maybe like levels in a beer glass. You know, like five levels. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. McConaughey put out a green lights journal to go with his book. I saw that recently. So it's like a little leather journal with three green lights on it. I love it. God, it's still a great book. And I took your advice and I listened to, didn't listen to, I watched um, American Underdog and uh, Chelsea watched it with me. And it was, it was great. It, it was a very good feel good. Everything about it um, was just like you said, it, it was it's wonderful. Yeah. It was very appropriate for what we need right now. Everybody should sit down and watch it with a loved one because it's just a wonderful story. Yeah, and then we got to see Dick Vermeil at the Super Bowl watching the Rams win it again. 
Yep. 20-ish years later. So I think this is a good wrap. Yeah, it's been uh been a good episode. I've uh we have definitely covered uh everything from world politics to slapping officers to uh performance reviews. So um looking forward to seeing what people people say of this as we publish this one. Yeah, yeah. So this has been the Leaders Drink Last podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. You can also follow Jake and I at thedriller.com with our monthly articles, Jake on leadership, me on whatever I decide to write when I sit down, uh, which is so much fun for my editor and publisher to know what they're getting when they get. But it's what you get when you're the lead writer and uh, get to have um, trust. So at some point, I'm going to just write something completely off wall about why I really want an Armageddon situation to happen so I can go with my friend Jake to space <laughs> and blow up an asteroid. Uh, probably won't happen. But thanks, everybody, and have a great uh, March. And yep. let's, hope, let's hope the next time we get on this call, um, a resolution has happened and we're not continuing a campaign and um, we should pray for all our Ukrainian friends and family and colleagues and whatnot and continue to pay attention to how this unveils. Yeah. And support Ukrainian beer if possible. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, if it's got a white uh, cloth coming out of the top of it, that wasn't beer. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers. We want to thank our bosses, mentors, coaches, and colleagues for our inspiration, along with the 21st century leadership gurus, Simon, Yako, Sutton, Gladwell, Leccioni, and many more that have influenced us. Music is provided by Artless Music, and our intro is Outlaws of the Old West, an excellent song from Everett Z. The outro song you're listening to right now is from Ian Post titled On The Way, an appropriate song for where we want leaders drink last to go. Now the legal disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed here on Leaders Drink Last are those of the host and authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of our employers, companies that we collaborate with, the Department of Defense, the Department of Labor, or companies and groups we volunteer to work with. Any content provided by our hosts, guests, bloggers, or authors are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, anyone, or really anything. We have the best intentions here at Leaders Shrink Last, and just like in leading teams, sometimes unexpected discussions come up. None of this is, is scripted, and we're just here to have fun. If you've enjoyed this, please like and subscribe. Thank you so much.